Hello and welcome to the Industry Leaders Podcast, where we talk to the leaders of some of the most exciting retail and dye art brands and learn the real stories behind their success, their challenges and their plans for the future. I'm Sarah Cole-Boyle and this podcast is brought to you by More2, the marketing science people. We have a slightly different show in store for you today. As you know by now, on this podcast, we speak to leaders from all over the retail industry to get their perspective on what's happening in retail in real time. And today I'm delighted to be joined in the show by Don Williams, former Olympian and now partner at KPMG. Now, Don is an expert in the retail sector with a particular focus on supply chain, international expansion, online and digital transformation, and harnessing data to build businesses for the future. In short, it's all the stuff a proactive, dynamic brand needs to be thinking about. So, Don, it is great to have you on the show. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for inviting me. That's absolutely my pleasure. So I'm going to jump in at the deep end here. There's a feeling, I think, that the global economy is licking its wounds after the combination of COVID, the start of the war in Ukraine and the supply chain issues that we all know so much about. To that end, you know, customer confidence fell in June to the lowest level on record. I'd love to hear, Don, what is your take on what is coming down the line and are consumers right to be so pessimistic? You're right, aren't you? Well, I think uh, at an individual level, we're feeling a bit nervous about things. The media sentiment is pretty negative all the time. And I think it's probably worth deconstructing it a little bit in terms of maybe thinking about the macroeconomic environment, what we think is going to happen, and then delving a bit into what the data from the retailers are telling us, because we pull the data together for the BRC, the British Retail Consortium. And so that gives us a read on a monthly basis about what's happening. And I do think to understand what's happening and therefore where the opportunities might lie it's worth getting a little bit lower than and more granular than just the headline figures which I'm going to start with in terms of a macroeconomic environment we've just re-released our macroeconomic forecast for this year and next year and it doesn't make great reading quite frankly it's okay for this year in terms of consumer spending we expect that to be relatively buoyant so 3.6 percent up on 2021 which means that we're spending more this year than we were last year however what we've got to remember is that there's a quite a significant inflation uplift in there so that means that actually the volume of stuff that we're going to buy is less than it would have been last year because our pound in our pocket is actually going less far and I think if we just counter a little bit further back, actually there is less pounds in our pocket because we lost some to the national insurance hike and the tax state hike. And then those less pounds in our pocket go less far because the inflation starts to buy. We think that inflation will continue to be higher for longer, which is not great. So we think that next year it'll be about about 8% on average, but it will start to come down at that point because you get an annualized impact of the big electricity price rises and the gas price rises. So you've got a forecast for 23, which looks a little bit ugly, quite frankly, because we do think there's going to be a reduction in consumer spend overall. And we do know that the impact of the inflationary pressures is going to be felt more keenly by certain segments of society than by others. So the lower paid or the lower income households in our country spend more, a greater proportion of their income on food and on electricity and on gas and heating than the wealthier or higher income households. So those lower income households are going to be disproportionately hit 
by this increase in food prices, which have gone up about 10% this year already, and definitely by the heating bits. So that causes some challenge. There is some good news, I think, within the data points, which is the unemployment rate is historically incredibly low, and we don't expect it to suddenly jump up. So for those of us old enough to remember back into the sort of 80s and to the points of very high unemployment rates, we don't expect that to recur. And I think that causes a challenge for us as business leaders because actually there's still some challenges in terms of getting the right people with the right skills into our businesses. So that challenge, I think, remains despite the fact that as a consumer, we feel a little bit nervous about the future. The other bit I think that's interesting is about interest rates. We do expect them to climb again. So we expect next year for it to get to by about 2.75%. We do expect after 23 for interest rates to start to fall again because we think inflation will start to come back under control. My worry about that was that you went from hysterically really, really low interest rates and when you push them up by 2.5% from a quarter of a percent, that could have a very disproportionate impact on those people who have mortgages in this country. And therefore, for many, if you've got a mortgage, that's likely to be your largest cash outgoing, notwithstanding the price increases in electricity in gas. Now, interesting, actually, when you look at mortgage rates, there are actually not that many people or households in the country own a house with a mortgage or a loan. So only 28% of the UK own a house with a mortgage or a loan. And I thought that was going to be much, much higher. And if you then add on to the fact that of that 28% of people who have a home owned with a mortgage, half of those people have a fixed rate mortgage for five years. So actually, they're protected from the interest rate rises. So there are less people in our country that have a mortgage. And even if they've got a mortgage, over half of them are protected from an interest rate rise. So it doesn't bite into cash outgoing. Unfortunately, that's not great news for the other half of the 28% who do have a mortgage, of which about 17% of them have it on a floating rate. And that, again, starts to eat into our disposable income. And we start to go, actually, this is going to be quite tough. In the immediate bit is at the moment from our trading numbers we can see is that most of the UK has decided that they're going to have a holiday this year and as a number of retailers and other commentators said when was the last time you went on holiday without something new in your luggage so that's been relatively okay since the September October might be a little bit more challenged but equally I don't think I can ever remember a time when the Great British public didn't have a Christmas so actually my concern from a customer spend point of view starts to come in January February March of next year I have more concern over that than I do over the near-term bit. And then I think it's worth us digging down into what the retail sales data is telling us. So it's been relatively robust. We've had positive numbers all the way through. It was 1.6% for July. But remembering what I said about the fact that's a value number, so actually the volume of stuff bought would have fallen. And that's when you have to get down into the categories. So footwear, clothing, accessories, all had really challenging two years over COVID. They've started to get a rebounce back. And all the way through this year, they've been in the top performing categories as we've started to go back and spend a bit more. All those categories that did really well out of COVID, the big ticket items, furniture, home furnishings, homewares, technology, have all had quite a challenging last few months 
And I suspect that continues to be so going forwards as well, both because we have less money in our pocket to spend and those big ticket items, I think, got buoyed up through COVID and therefore there's not a repurchase cycle of quite the same velocity as there is in some of those more disposable, if you like, categories. So there is some challenges around the categories that you need to think your way around at a quite granular basis, which is, so what category do I sit in? And then secondly, What's the demographic of the customer that I have and how likely is it that this crush, this reduction in available spend hits my customer base either disproportionately harder or actually they're probably a little bit more protected. And if that's the case, then how do I help them to make sure that they're spending with me and not with somebody else? Because I think what we're also seeing in the data is divergence of performance within category. So it is possible and actually all the history tells us as well that you can be a winner in difficult times for your consumer if you really understand who he and she is and understand exactly how you can help her or him to satisfy their needs and their demands and their requirements in the right way at the right time. So you start with it's really dismal outside and surely the UK media needs to find a different word for the word chaos because it's applying it to everything at the moment and it all feels very dark and yet I still think there is opportunity in these times and I think there are echoes of the past that we can look back to you know history doesn't always repeat itself but the definite echoes previously we've seen in difficult times people go to value and to discount and also trade up in terms of buy once buy well and we've definitely seen businesses grow during these challenging times because they've really understood their customer at quite a granular level and found a way to organize themselves so that they can make money and they can make inroads and they can grow into this market. I do think there's real opportunity there. Personally, I also think that it will be helpful because I suspect there also will be a period of creative destruction, which sounds very callous. But actually, if we think back to 2008 and the general financial crisis, we didn't really have a period of creative destruction from a, yes, we've had brands go out of business, but not necessarily at the sort of volume in terms of the numbers or really those that were particularly surprised us at any point, I don't think, to the same extent. So there can be, and we do need a period of that, so that strong businesses that have strong balance sheets and can invest in the things that they need to invest in to satisfy the customers that they want to attract, those businesses need to survive and thrive. And to do so, you actually need to do a bit of weeding. It is unfortunately like gardening, and that is really sad for some of those brands, and it's really sad for some of the people who work in those brands. But, you know, I do remember Someone saying, oh, Woolworths, it's awful, it's gone bust. And I was like, yeah, well, but when was the last time you went into it? And the person said, well, I didn't go into it, apart from to go to the pick and mix sweets, to sort of pick them up, lick them and put them back in the box. Now, which, of course, you can never do it during COVID times now, could you? But we sort of look back a little bit on some of these brands and go, actually, we never used them because they weren't giving us what we wanted as a customer. So I think there will be a period of opportunity in that respect as well. And I'd really like to hear your take on a brand like that who's quite dynamic, wants to adapt and change, doesn't want to end up like a Woolworths. What actionable advice would you give to the CEO of, say, a footwear brand who's looking at tough times coming down the line? What should they be focusing on right now? What's the most important thing they can do? It's really interesting. I think about the things we're really talking to our clients about and helping them with. One is clearly around cost and efficiency. And we believe that there is a need to think about how can I take somewhere between 20 and 25% of the cost of my business out of my business? 
And I think there is a relatively structured approach to doing that. So our approach is to start very tactically. We've got 160 odd hypotheses of areas where quite clearly when we talk to clients, some of them will have been pulled levers they would have pulled. Some of them will provoke a thought of a lever they never even knew was there, but they can pull. Generally speaking, we end up with sort of 30 to 50 of those 160 being applicable, relatively easy to do. And generally we get to sort of five to 8% ish of savings. And then there's a second bucket, which is a bit more structural. So what we find is that people look at costs vertically rather than horizontally. So not how the business actually fits together. When you start to do that, then there's a point where you can start to invest a little bit more to achieve those cost savings. So they come through over a period of time, but you do have to invest to get hold of them. And again, that starts to go into that sort of five to ten percent of cost savings and then in your last bucket the sort of fundamental re-engineering of your business really thinking about what we sell to whom where and how and going we need to shift this completely so i think there is a very structured very thoughtful and very challenging approach to the underlying cost of doing business through all of the important buckets people, technology, property, all of the process stuff. So I think the cost of doing business is one area that needs to be tackled. With that, what would I have to do to be able to take 10% out? What would have to be true if it was 20% so that you're prepared for that and you can start to think about whether that's the appropriate way to do things rather than to continue to do the things you've already done. So that's the first bit. The second bit, I think, and partly this is driven by the situation that we've had through COVID and through the Brexit disturbance is to look in a very granular basis at where your supply chain fits together, literally follow a product from design all the way through and into a customer's hands and understand exactly where the levers are and where the dependencies are and whether you can reshift and re-engineer that both to achieve greater agility and flexibility so you can turn it off and on more quickly and you can achieve a cost base. For instance, if I looked at one end of this, we're speaking to a number of retailers who have satisfied a European customer all the way through the last two or three years post-Brexit and through COVID and just delivered product into Europe. And they're now going, actually, when I look at that, I'm not making any money out of it because all I've done is just continue to do what I've already done. And now I've got to look again to go, how do I build a profitable business model into Europe? What does that mean? Does that mean I have to have a, a warehouse over there? Does that mean I have to split deliver into the UK and into wherever it might be in Europe? Where in Europe would I cite it given the location of all my customers to get the greatest reduction in terms of actual supply chain logistics costs? And also where's the most effective place in terms of rental of the warehouse? Do I do it myself? Do I outsource it? How expensive are the people in Poland compared to Germany, compared to France? What are the dynamics around the cost price of doing that? And then you have to start to overlay the regulatory side as well. So that's VAT, duty, the governance piece. I think at a very granular, that's another area where we would really encourage people to look very carefully at, because that starts to address how can I be more responsive as a business and also deliver the best quality service at a best quality price or cost of doing so and that whole cycle including the resulting cycle is a real challenge for most retailers and specifically when you start to cross borders which you will do because you know for most of our retailers in the uk some element of product will have been created and manufactured overseas before it got here even if it's the source of the product coming into the uk 
Those are two very specific bits, and then we could probably start to explore some of the other areas as well. I think the understanding your customer and how he or she is thinking, what's going through their mind, how you can you attract them effectively and cost effectively, and also how can you start to get slightly ahead of them, personalize that service. At one level, it might be if you thought about furniture, for instance, and I think this is true actually in most retailers, I think we've got to move from just-in-time stock levels to just-in-case stock levels. And if you do that, clearly have a working capital impact. But I think there is a proposition for some larger ticket items that actually the having stock available is helping us as consumers to buy it. So if you go in to buy a bed and you have to wait two and a half months, three months for the bed to arrive and the business around the corner has another bed and you only have to wait a couple of weeks, that availability can drive conversion. Now, quite clearly, that's an optimal conversation, isn't it? Because you can't have too much stock, total availability. But I think we're moving into a place where people are going to look at sell-through. So how much stock can I get through and sell at full price? And I'll be a bit happier with stock outs, not having the stock available, rather than chasing having no stock outs and making sure I've got total stock availability at all times. And if I have to clear it at the back end of the season, I will do. It's really interesting that you bring that up because I recently had Georgia Metcalf, who's the founder of French Bedroom, an interior business that makes really, really beautiful furniture and accessories. And she came up against very serious supply chain issues over which she had no control, but which she addressed by calling up affected customers personally. And that strategy worked very well for her. I think she managed to save those customers. She didn't lose them. But I'd be really interested to hear what you think. How accepting will customers be now of supply chain issues? Because we've been hearing about them since the start of the pandemic. Are people getting a bit sick of them? How much understanding do you think customers are going to have for retailers? It's a great question, actually, because when we did some customer research at the start of COVID, we were really lovely people at the start of COVID. We were out clapping our carers. We were wonderfully supportive of our neighbours. We were very forgiving of our retailers who were trying to work out how they could get product to us. And it was, and the weather was lovely, wasn't it? So April to May of, of that first COVID period was fantastic. And we were lovely, lovely people. And we converted to our selfish selves by about July. And we became utterly unforgiving of, you know, slow delivery, poor delivery. So I think that, unfortunately, although I'd like to think we're all lovely people really at heart, we're pretty unforgiving when it comes to supply chain issues and that they need to be solved for us. And it is important that we get clear and honest information about when something will be available so we can then make a decision ourselves. And that's when I go back to that bit is if a one bed retailer says to me, you can have it in two weeks and it's two weeks, that's fine because I can make that decision. If it's two weeks and it goes to three and to four and to five and to six, that's going to be worse than me removing my order. That turns me, I sense, into a bit of a brand terrorist as well. So I think we're quite impatient, unfortunately, and I haven't found a piece of the core curriculum in the UK that teaches patience. Uh, no, no, unfortunately not. <laughs> I'd love to say, yeah, no, they'll be very forgiving, but I just don't think we are. And bearing that in mind, we hear a lot about building the customer into the front office, the middle office and the back office of your business. How can you actually practically do that? Because I think it's one of those things that gets talked about a lot and there are loads of buzzwords flying around the place. But I'm not sure how many actionable strategies actually get shared with and amongst business leaders and boards. It's a great question. So one of the things we found right at the beginning of the COVID crisis in terms of understanding your customer was from a grocery perspective, if you think about it, 
it was most grocers may know the name of their customer. They would know where they lived and they would know their purchase history. But that is not enough detail to be able to prioritize an online delivery stock to someone who is vulnerable. So just knowing name, address and purchase history is not granular enough. Equally, I think where we've worked with predominantly store-based retailers, where they've grown from, when they've looked at the way in which they've constructed themselves, actually right at the core, they don't really need to know who I am, where I live, because all they had to do was open the store in the right place and enough of me would walk past and walk in. And that was enough. I do think that the catalogue-based retailers, those who started with a catalogue and those who started digital first, have an advantage because you can't send a catalogue to someone if you don't know their name and their address. So there is a design piece inside a business that thinks about me as an individual because they've got to send to me something to stimulate my purchase. So they have to know who I am. At a very high level, do you know who your customers are by name and address at the first bet and also my digital footprint? We might come back to the digital piece of this as well, because I think that's worth just exploring as to what that shift has happened and what we think might happen going forward. Because overtly, I don't think the future is totally digital and nor do I think that the future is totally physical retail. There's a blend in between, I think, is the perfect bit. And I think we can start to see digital brands starting to open physical stores and vice versa. But we'll come back to that. So I think there is this bit about thinking about the customer and knowing who he or she is, where she lives, and then starting to get some more data about them, about the type of lives that they're living and where they are in their lives and what, for instance, since life events are going to happen where you can get in their lives and help solve a problem for them because you know that problem's coming up. There is a brilliant financial services business in the States, which is one the sort of customer centricity type, customer service excellence sort of plaudits for years and years, which is based around servicemen. Initially, actually, they were the first to do photograph checks. That was because they realized that if you had US servicemen operating in Afghanistan, there weren't a lot of high street banks where they could um, cash checks in. So you had to find a different solution around it. But things that they have done is when you're a US serviceman, unfortunately, some of them will lose their lives. So they solved the problem of death for the family. By which I mean, if you die in the UK and if you have a bank, you can probably go to the bank and get standing orders and direct debits closed, but that's it. But there's a whole bunch of other stuff that needs to be done from funerals to sorting out the will and probate. They sort that because it's a life event. The other thing that happens with servicemen in the States is they move from base to base. And generally when they move, they don't take their cars with them. So they buy a lot of cars. And so they have solved the whole process for buying a car, from finding it, negotiating the price, insuring it. I think that the time limit from start of that process to end is about three hours. Because they've thought about the whole of that customer journey and all the things you have to do along the way and solve the problem for you. The other bit I think is interesting is that most of our retail clients start with profitability metrics based around product and place, as in channel, and then they get to customer. I suspect that will flip on its head and people will start to think about profitability metrics by customer, then by product, and then by channel becomes channel agnostic. And I think when then if you start to talk to some of the digital first retailers, you start to talk to them about customer acquisition costs, lifetime value of customer, the fact that they've captured that by cohort and they understand it in a granular level, those customer profitability metrics and transaction metrics and the frequency and cadence of them, they are second nature to those businesses. By the way, I do think there's a bit of a challenge around boardroom tables around both technology in its own right, but also digital marketing and how that works in its own right 
I've not found a CIO or a CTO who is a chair or a Ned. And I have yet to find one who is a CEO either. And that means that when the IT director is asking for a load of money to do something that pretty much every chair and CEO has ever said to me, is, I need to avoid an IT replacement and I need to avoid a supply chain, a big warehouse strategy, because both those are career limiting. If you have a CTO asking for a load of money to do something that's quite risky and a CEO doesn't necessarily come from that background, they don't know the language or they're not confident to be able to challenge and support and to drive a better outcome for themselves. And then they look around the boardroom table and can't find a CIO, CTO, a Ned or a chair, so they haven't got that much support around them. And I suspect, or Though we've got a few more CEOs who've come out of the digital marketing background. Again, that's not a core competence around the boardroom table. So sometimes we lose stuff in translation and we don't have the armaments in terms of the knowledge, experience and language to be able to test and challenge and course correct as we might do from, say, a product category or from a store opening strategy or even store operations. How do we operate inside store? That competence is around the boardroom table because it's always been there. So I think looking around your boardroom table to see where that experience and expertise is either inside your business, so you've got support and knowledge to drive that type of change or outside your business that you can bring in so you can have that mirror, you can have that intelligence that supports you to make much clearer and better decisions that then help you to start to drive the metrics that start with who's my customer, how much is she worth to me, how much did I have to pay to get her or him, how do I keep the cadence of her spend with me and how can I help her to be so delighted about what she does with me and he does with me that it's going to go back to the sort of 1840s and they're going to tell everybody that the local butcher's got great pheasant in today. So I hope that helps with some thoughts around that as well. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely does. I think it's worth pointing out as well that the CMO, and I always feel sorry for CMOs because CMO traditionally has the shortest tenure of any board member, which is probably at least partly a result of other board members not fully understanding either the terminology or, to be honest, the basic fundamentals of marketing and particularly digital marketing. If you go back to that bit I said about challenging in employment, we haven't produced enough people who have that sort of arithmetic type, scientific type mind. So either technology or in the digital marketing space, which is super helpful. I understand there's some creative better, but it's quite structured, logical, technical. We haven't produced enough. And therefore there is a challenge. There is more demand for those people than there are those people around. And the discipline is still relatively young. I remember speaking to somebody about five years after the sort of internet first started and they said, oh, I'd like somebody with 10 years worth of online experience. And I was like, well, they only got creative five years ago. I mean, they don't exist. And we've got a bit of that. So I do wonder whether or not some of what we've got to do is look at our bright young people who are probably a little bit, we think, too young for that opportunity and find a way to promote them, give them the opportunity to fly because we're going to get a more cost-effective solution. They're going to learn more quickly and we need to structure some support and training and coaching around them to be the best people they can be and a support network to help them because they're going to fall over here and there. But that's part of this environment is it's a test and learn bit. It's fail often, fail quickly, fail better the next time because you will progress and feel confident doing it. So can we find a way actually, rather than just looking for the really expensive unicorn who's flitted from place to place at a very senior level, 
are we better off actually looking into our business and going, there's some brilliant talent in there. Let's promote them. Let's give them the opportunity and let's find a way to support them to accelerate their careers along the way because we'll get a better outcome. We'll get greater loyalty, I suspect, from our employees and greater commitment from them. And I suspect it'll be cheaper. Yeah, yeah. And you hopefully won't end up like Woolworths. (laughs) Right, exactly. I'd like to jump back a little bit to something you touched on earlier, and that is the future of physical and online. It's something I find so interesting because so many e-commerce or brands that started out as e-commerce only are opening up pop-up shops or full-time shops. And the focus always for those founders who we speak to, it's always about meeting the customer, talking to the customer, hearing from the customer and getting that immediate feedback and engagement with the people who are buying from them and wearing their clothes or buying their beds or whatever it is. So I'd love to hear your perspective on what the online offline split is going to look like in the future, what customers are going to want from brands and from stores, what the high street might look like, you know, just the the small existential questions of the future of the industry. Yeah, what's happened over COVID is we've had what I would call in my language a locked in step up in online activity at two levels. One is we're much more comfortable using digital methods of payment than we ever were before. So that's broken a bit of a barrier and that includes the amount of time we're tapping and going in a physical store as much as it does online. But if we look at food, it's gone from sort of 5% penetration rate to 10%. If we look at non-food, it's gone from 20 to 40%. So sort of double that the growth of those increases is slowing dramatically and in fact coming back a bit, but you would expect that. But I do think we've got a locked in step up. What I don't think is we've got an inexorable rise so that that 40% in non-food categories goes to 60 to 80 to 90. That doesn't feel like that's right. And I also don't think we've got a place where we've suddenly go back to pre-COVID norms and it goes back to 20. It feels to me that in that 35 to 40% dependent on category, and I think it is category dependent, but around 40%, you're about there, then you're probably about on the mark. And I don't necessarily see a massive shift of that. We're not in the place that says, oh, it's going to be 60% online by 2025. That's not what we see. And I do think it is different by category. And by the way, because of the food bit, we over-index on online penetration in the UK because we're quite high because it's relatively easier to deliver an online food delivery in the UK than it is in the Canadian prairies, yeah, because we've got a weight of population relatively close to each other. And in that, by the way, that means that nine out of 10 grocery purchases are made in store, right? And that also means that six out of 10 non-food categories are made in store. What I don't know, because I don't have the data for, is of the four out of 10, or the six out of 10, so four out of 10 transacted online, or six out of 10 transacted in store, which customers went to which channels on the way to making the final transaction? I don't think I'm that unusual. It will probably combine a lot of them, as in both an online and an offline channel, and often more than one digital channel. And often, because I can't make a decision on my own myself, it will be informed by close friends who advocate. And I'm not sure I see that changing very much, quite frankly, which is why I think there is this wonderful opportunity to blend both the online and offline and then start to think about my spend as a, a customer point of view, my profitability over a lifetime. The bit that's really difficult, I think, online, and I don't think it's just because I am what I think Charles Archie would call a digital immigrant rather than a digital native who grew up with the thing, is I do think discovery is more difficult online. So if I put little black dress into a search engine, I get inundated. And what I choose to wear at the weekends is my business, clearly. But you get inundated with choice 
And actually what you do, I think, want help with is curated choice. And some brands can do that online. And clearly some of that advocacy helps us with curated choice, doesn't it? Because our friends help us curate that. But you don't stumble across much on the internet. You do stumble across stuff physically. And I think people are genuinely at their core a little bit curious and a bit open for that. I think we also like being told stories and we like understanding the heritage of product and where it's come from. And I think that becomes increasingly important and telling those stories and introducing that story behind the brand and the products and comes to life much more richly with a human being in a store than it does on an online video for many people. And I think that feels to me where you get some quite interesting places in your store, in your store environment, when you're allowing people to discover and to experience and to explore and to play. Absolutely. And I think there's so many more opportunities for the old surprise and delight in a store. And one of the biggest things that gets overlooked sometimes in these conversations is the importance of store staff, because they are your feet in the ground. They're your ambassadors who are interacting with your customer every single day. And which out of Chelsea in particular do it brilliantly when they have you come in and try your sample and they can tell you the story of that particular tea or coffee. And that really creates a memory and an emotional connection for that customer. Right, and it brings it to life. The other bit there is your staff are really important in terms of capturing that customer, aren't they? Because if you make a transaction, you've got to know it's not, you know, transaction 100,967 of that day at 1899. You need to know it's Don Williams and you need to know that it's attached to my customer record. And then you can start to reward and play with me as well at that point, can't you? And build the loyalty bit as well. That opportunity, that moment of truth is created by your store staff at Tillside, which I think also goes back to right at the start, we talked about trying to strip out inefficiencies, looking at what percentage of time your store staff can spend in front of customers on a shop floor, helping them, solving the problems, telling them the story, getting their, the customer's enthusiasm up, what percentage of their time is spent there and what percentage of time is spent at the software of choice for most retailers, which is Excel, sitting in the back office of the store. Because if you can take any of those manual processes away from your store staff so they can spend more time in front of customers, then that will pay you absolutely massive dividends. And bringing us back to the more immediate future and Christmas. As retailers and brands are prepping for peak and probably keeping one eye on the darkening clouds on the horizon. What do you anticipate peak looking like this year? Will it start earlier or will customers be more inclined to hold out for bigger deals later on? How are you advising clients to prepare for peak this year? Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending which way you look at it, we imported Black Friday. So it probably starts for most thinking about what Black Friday looks like. For most of my senses, you need to participate or show that you're participating. I'm an advocate of narrow and shallow by which I mean it shouldn't be blanket across everything and it doesn't need to be that deep, but you need to participate to stimulate the thought process. I don't think I can see much evidence that says it's increased overall spend at Christmas. All I think is it's brought it forward a little bit. I think there was a point probably four, five, six years ago when we had some real supply chain challenges over Christmas and the impact the following Christmas was we bought earlier because we were nervous about buying online and it never getting there. Or if it did, it was sort of thrown over the fence to our neighbours, supposedly. I do think there will be an element of that this year because of some of the supply chain challenges. So availability becomes important. So ensuring you've got the stock that you need in the country, especially if it's seasonal stock, 
I would be hedging to get that in earlier rather than later. And I'd suffer a working capital consequence for ensuring that, you know, it's quite difficult as far as I can understand to sell a Christmas stocking in January. So my risk, I think, of having it arrive in October is a better opportunity for me than having it arrive in January. So earlier than later, make sure it's available and be honest to customers about delivery times as well. Online cutoff, ensuring that you try and get as many of them into stores as possible, even if it's reserve and collect. Because again, I do think we see enough evidence to say that if you can get a customer into your store, they're probably like to leave your store with one extra product at least. By the way, I think that the UK curriculum teaches family budgeting as a core subject either. But I do think if you're in a position where you don't have that much money and try and eke it out, that you're likely to try and eke it out by spreading it over a longer period. But I think we will have a Christmas. I just do think that the great British public, it is a basic human right to have a Christmas and children get presents at Christmas. Their parents feel good. It makes their kids feel good. It makes their families feel good. It makes your friends feel good. And it makes you feel good giving them. So I don't think that we're going to have no Christmas. And it does feel a little bit premature, I think, to be talking about Christmas in August, but you really can't start prepping for peak too soon at all. Well, get back to that point is how long does it take you to get a container from China to here? So a while, I think, is the answer. And it might be just worth touching on that in terms of the costs of freight, which has dramatically increased. So from a $2,500 a container to 20000 at spot during the peak of the supply chain problems. It's come down a bit since it is not going back to two and a half, three thousand dollars a container. It might get to just about five figures, like nine and a half, eight and a half, ten, but it's not going back to two and a half. So if you are building your business model around a container from that is at back to three and a half, four, five, we just don't believe that's going to be the case. But that goes back into that opportunity in your supply chain, doesn't it? We literally haven't spoken about the importance of ESG and trust and integrity in brands, which I think becomes increasingly important, not just because of regulatory pressure, but I think customers are demanding it more and more and they want those stories and they like to be attached to something that makes them feel good. I don't think they're going to pay more for it, by the way. And I do accept, because I've got a 25-year-old daughter, what a customer says and what a customer does are two different things. So I can get my daughter saying, you know, fast fashion's cleaning the planet, something needs to be done about it, and two and a half minutes later, she'll be shopping on a fast fashion website so i have an eco warrior of a son yet i can't get him to turn his lights off in a bedroom so i do understand the disconnect between what people say and what people do but increasingly we're seeing in our customer service that people are saying this is important to them and that they will make purchasing decisions on the basis of trust integrity and esg credentials and by the way i'll pay 10 percent, 20 percent, 30 percent more because that brand has that credential so I do think that becomes an increasingly important lens retailers to put on their business. And by the way, I do think that there are some wins when you do that. So if you've also always and always and always wrapped your product in 15 layers of plastic, do you really need to do that? Or is that, in fact, not a requirement? So it saves you on the ESG bit, but actually saves you cost as well. Yes. And I do think that the sustainability piece is really becoming that fourth pillar after value, quality and convenience. But I also think that consumers now are so conscious of greenwashing. You know, they don't want to just see a green sticker slapped on something that's claiming to be eco with nothing there to back up the claim. I think you're spot on right. What we do find when we speak to people actually is, one, that they've never really audited, as in looked at everything they do with an ESG lens, and actually they'll be doing a lot, lot more than they think they are. They've just never thought about it like that. And because of that, they've never captured it in one place. And because they've never captured it in one place, they can't tell a consistent story about what they're choosing to do. And then you get to a problem with the fact that I think everybody's a little nervous about the fact that 
you're going to be able to find a story somewhere that says you're not as good as you should be. And I think that's okay, especially if you've set your stall out with all the evidence and stuff you are going to do. I also think it's impossible to be perfect in this. This is a journey that continues and continues and continues. And therefore, I think you have to make conscious choices about where is your biggest impact on an ESG impact bit and where can you have your biggest impact on your biggest impact. And then you tell your customers in an informed way that you are choosing to try and have your biggest impact on your biggest impact. And the fact that you're not dealing with something else that has a lesser impact is not that you don't know it doesn't exist. It's just if you try and do it all, you're never going to win. So you're going to have the biggest impact on your biggest impact. And that's a bigger win than trying to do absolutely everything and succeeding at nothing. Yes, I agree. Pick your battles, pick the thing you can be brilliant at and do it. Absolutely right. And be able to tell the story and be proud of the fact and allow your customers to be proud of the fact that you have picked your battle and you are winning and you're progressing. Sound advice there. I think that's a more positive place to end than where we were five minutes ago. (laughs) (laughs) As I said to you right at the start, I think I'm born optimist, but I think there's real opportunity in situations like this where there is disturbance and there is difficulty and there is challenge. It really allows certain businesses and certain business owners and certain employees to really stand up and make a significant difference. You don't really get that opportunity quite as easily if there isn't disturbance. I think there is real opportunity in this market and then the market we're about to go through, which I think will certainly last us through 2023 and probably into a bit of 2024. Right. Well, we'll have to get you back again this time next year and see how you did. Well, um, mark my scorecard. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. We mark your homework. Listen, Dan, it was great to speak with you. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing your thoughts and insights with us. Pleasure. It was a total privilege. Thank you very much indeed for having me. And hopefully it was helpful. That was Don Williams from KPMG. Huge thanks to Don for coming on the podcast and sharing all his thoughts and expertise. I'm sure you learned a lot from it. I certainly did. If you would like to hear some more stories and learnings from retail leaders from all across the sector, do just check out our previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts. That's it for this week. So from me, Sarah Coboyle and all of us at More2, take care and we'll see you soon.